let's get calm, let's get calm, let's get calm. Drugs Please get us the medication. Simple. Simple, there's no conversion. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Jared, Evan, and Bob, to create a place that treats addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible. And I know this uh, firsthand from my friends who are there and have been there. Uh, They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. Their team has decades of experience in treating these things and obviously in treating addiction. They have amenities that you wouldn't believe, including the incredible sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, the incredibly spiritual sweat lodge. Basically, if you're all fucked up on drugs and you want to get well and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I strongly recommend going to Aloe. All right, Dopey Nation, I want to tell you guys about this new podcast from my friends at Colorado Public Radio that I think you'll love. It's called Back From Broken. It's about recovery, the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. You'll meet guests who dealt with substance abuse, PTSD, gambling addiction, and hear how they turn their lives around. Some guests are famous. Others just have amazing stories that are raw, funny, and actually really hopeful. Listeners on Apple Podcasts call it powerful, gutsy, and relatable. Find Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And last but certainly not least, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon page. And the Patreon is on fire lately. I don't do this often, but the Patreon episode this week is so powerful. It features Dopey Nation uh, craft master general Misty. You just go to Dopey Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. Misty's story is incredibly compelling. Uh, You should listen to it. And if you're a crazy Dopey fan, a Dopey listener, you should kick a few bucks down. If you kick at least $2 down, we'll send you a Dopey decal for your car, which is an amazing value. Also, you can get amazing merchandise at www.dopeypodcast.com. We have the Big Bird shirts, tanks, and long sleeves back in by popular demand. We have a lot of new stuff, tote bags, mugs are coming soon, a new Just the Head in new, incredibly fashionable summer colors. So go to dopeypodcast.com, order some stuff, and uh, we're partnered up with... uh, with a couple of heroin addicts in recovery that run a printing company called SRO Prints. Um, so if you buy a shirt, you're helping out a bunch of people in recovery. And the shirts are dope. Also, I still have snapbacks and stickers and 
I don't know, man. I haven't shipped in so long. I feel like such a fucking piece of shit. But maybe tomorrow morning, maybe tomorrow morning is the day that I'm finally going to ship. So look out. If you want stickers or snapbacks or socks or ski hats, uh, hit me up on Venmo or wherever you want to hit me up, and we'll make it work. If you're waiting for an order, fear not. It is coming soon. Enough with the ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and I am um, peaceful and happy in my attic on Long Island. And um, the world is going fucking crazy, and I want to talk about it for a second. This man, George Floyd, um, was buying a sandwich in Minneapolis with a fake $20 bill, and he wound up getting murdered by the police. And sure, it's like... It just goes to show, like, you do something that's not perfect and, and the whole world falls on you. And, um, and that's what freaks me out about this whole thing. Like, as addicts, we can do things um, and we don't think it's going to have a crazy consequence. And then it echoes through the lens of craziness and the stupidity of other people. And all of a sudden, we're dead, either at the hands of some terrible fentanyl overdose or getting killed by some piece of shit racist policeman. Now there's riots in Minneapolis. There's crazy violent protests in New York and Denver and Louisiana. There's violence. There's, it's crazy out there. And, um, you know, I remember in the early 2000s and the late 90s that I was using because I thought the world was going to end, uh, you know, uh, 9-11 and George Bush and the war in Afghanistan and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I just figured... It was my time to get high because nothing mattered anyway. And I can imagine people feeling that times a million right now with the stuff going on, with this murder in Minneapolis, with uh, these riots. And uh, all I can ask the Dopey Nation, for your sake, for the world's sake, for everyone's sake, is to try to be cool and uh, don't go looking for trouble and uh, you know, try to do the next right thing for somebody and, uh, and take care of yourself and your family because this is the moment where addicts uh, get pulled out. They get fucked up. They think they have room to operate, to get high, to act out. Uh, and, I, and I do think anybody that wants to protest should protest. Just try to do it in a nonviolent way. It is scary out there and you guys can get hurt. And um, I don't want to see anybody else get hurt. I, I just want to see... And I mean, who the fuck am I? I'm sitting in my attic, you know? I, I was eating cupcakes last night. It's my birthday coming up, and my sister sent me uh, a huge box of cupcakes from Magnolia uh, Bakery in Manhattan, and they're delicious. And I'm sitting there watching Minneapolis burn down as I'm eating cupcakes, and uh, it's just such a, a sad situation, you know, that uh, racism and hate brings us to a senseless moment like this. But... You know, I, I, I only want the best for everybody, and I just wanted to say that. So if you're an addict and if you can hear uh, the beginning of this show and if you can keep cool, uh, do whatever you can to help somebody and remain happy, joyous, and free. And I don't want to be preachy. I just want to put it out there. Like, the best we can do is look out for each other. 
And on that note, we have a very exciting show. We have a psychiatrist, a doctor from Atlanta, Georgia. Her name is uh, Dr. Nzinga Harrison, and she is a podcast host. Her podcast is called In Recovery. She's a friend of our friend Stephanie Whittles Wax on Lemonada, and it was awesome to talk to her, and here she is. All right, this is very exciting. Normally, I never, I never pre-interview, and pre-interviews are never good, but I just talked to Dr. Nzinga Harrison on Skype in pre-interview, and she's a very lovely and charming woman. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Dude, as pre-interviews go, that was pretty good, right? I mean, I didn't even feel like it was a pre-interview. I thought we were just vibing, but now I know. Oh, how? come on. We were vibing, (laughs) but this is like professional time. I've never even used the words pre-interview. I figured you're the doctor. You're the the big-time podcasting doctor. (laughs) I have to give it in a professional term or something. I'll take I'll take that professional term pre-interview henceforth now and forever. No, from now on it's just vibing. Fuck all that. right, I'm not, all I'm right. Not even, I'm not even playing with that. With no way. Um, but I'm very excited because uh, you know one of our good podcasting family friends is uh, is Stephanie Whittles Wax of Last Day and Lemonada, and she contacted me about Nzinga. I want to say Doctor Nzinga every time. You're never going to do Doctor sure. Nzinga. You can do Dr. Nzinga if you want to, but Nzinga also works. Nzinga slash Dr. Nzinga, and she's yes. coming out with a show on Lemonada called In Recovery, and I listened to some of your episodes on last day, and I find you to be a very compelling woman, so I'm going to welcome you twice to Dopey. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be welcomed twice. So what made you become a doctor who cares about junkies and addiction? Yeah, so... Um, one, a doctor who cares about people. I know you're okay. like irreverent. You're irreverent, so um, I say that lovingly. I, I feel you. I'm with okay, you. okay. So I actually decided really young to be a doctor, but I don't have doctors in my family, right? So at that point, it was like I, the kind of doctor I knew was a pediatrician, um, and I wanted to be a doctor and a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My dad was commander of the Black Panther militia in Indianapolis, Indiana, and an electrical engineer. Yeah. So as I kind of grew up, then I ended up, look, I'm laying on your couch with my whole life story, but it all relates. Um, Had scoliosis, like very significantly, very close to having to get surgery in seventh grade. I met my orthopedic surgeon, and he was the best doctor I had ever met. He was compassionate. He was smart. He was like, he seemed like he knew me, even though I only knew, saw him every three months. And from there, I decided I would be a pediatric surgeon. So I went to medical school with the idea that I would be a pediatric surgeon. And it pretty quickly became clear that my visual spatial skills (laughs) perhaps did not lend themselves to surgery. So right. you didn't have the, the, the hands or the, the visual spatial skills to be able to open somebody up and do the I can open you up, but same way, like, I can drive into my own neighborhood right now and still get a little lost. Right. <laughs> I could open you up, and I was like, I am a little lost inside this body. Like, I love it. I love surgery. It didn't gross me out. It's fascinating, everything. But I just didn't feel like I could be amazing at it because my natural biology, right, was not sure. supporting me. Um, So I actually did not even consider, this is crazy, but true, did not consider psychiatry to be real medicine. The only thing I had ever heard about psychiatry was like Freud, 
lay on my couch, talk about your mother. And I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist. I'm data-driven. I like chemistry. Organic chemistry was my favorite class, right? And I was like, that specialty doesn't have anything for me. But in medical school, you have to do every specialty because you have to learn some basic knowledge about every major system. And I think you would agree the brain is major. Yeah, I'd say it's major. Okay, thank you, because I didn't want to have to fight you about that, but I was willing, right? And so I I did my psychiatry rotation, and the the teaching physician that I had was just an absolute rock star, and I I saw the science, and I saw the brain imaging, and I saw the genetic input, and I saw the interaction with life, and then I saw just how stigmatized and denigrated and cast aside that people with mental health disorders and addiction were, and that tapped, like, the reason I mentioned that my dad was commander of the Black Panther militia, because I was raised an activist, and I was like, holy crap, I was like, science, life, compassion, like, I've always loved humans, a part of medicine that other doctors know diddly squat about, so there's being a teacher, and people that are getting basically crapped on all day, every day, there's my activism, I was like, this feels like a perfect fit. And so that's how I went into psychiatry and eventually addiction medicine. I say psychiatry is this redheaded stepchild of medicine and addiction is the redheaded stepchild of the redheaded stepchild. And it's been a perfect fit. Yeah. So you pick, you pick it very carefully. You're like, (laughs) I need the most outcast of the most outcast. And that's where I'm going to shepherd these people. And make um, a change. Well, as an addict, you know, and this is whatever, as an addict, I've always uh, maybe it's because I've always been very defiant or like, I just never liked teachers. I never liked doctors. I never liked, ca- no, I don't mean, I'm not I'm being I'm for two. I'm no, all I'm for just, two. No, I mean, my parents were teachers, our teachers. You know, I grew up in a household of all teachers. Like all of my extended family worked in the New York City Board of Ed. I just was, I never wanted to hear about it, you know, and mm-hmm. I went to treatment six billion times mm-hmm. and I never felt like anybody really cared that was working with me. And I don't think they were bad treatments. I think I was an addict and it was my natural response to authority. Like, I just think that's how it was. And, um, you know, my natural response to anybody that thinks they can get somebody better from addiction is always suspect. You know, that's my first reaction. Mm-hmm. And, but, but that wasn't where the question was going to come from. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. Here. <laughs> my, my question was, like, how... Like, why did you not go to the mental health side? Why did you go to the addiction side? Yeah, no. So mental health and addiction are the same thing, right? If I talk to you about the biology and the neurotransmitters, the chemicals in the brain that underlie depression, anxiety, trauma, ADHD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, addiction, it is all the same chemicals. So my entire career, I have practiced both what we would call general psychiatry, which is like taking care of adults with all of that stuff that I just named, as well as the specialty of addiction medicine. So I definitely embrace both as a career. So addiction is basically, it's a mental health disorder that yeah. somehow careened into a substance. Correct, exactly. And, and the substance use disorder is its own disorder, right? But it's kind of like, think about um, if you go to a cardiologist, there are people with high blood pressure that see a cardiologist, and there are people who have had a heart attack that see cardiologists. They're both still cardiac conditions, even though they're different. And so depression and addiction are both mental health conditions. 
Right, and it's just the way yeah. they mani- they manifest. Like exactly. not every depressed person is copping heroin and finding themselves strung out. Very true. Um, and and was there anything like was there ever a person in your life? Was there ever an addict that like you were like I need to work with this person, I need to help this person or you know, was it was it personalized like that or did you just get drawn to the field because of you know, the need in the field for, for, you know, kind, competent people. Yeah. So thank you for putting the emphasis on kind, competent people, because I think that's exactly what we need. Um, but yes. So if you look back like now with my head shrinker credentials, right? Like now that I'm a psychiatrist, I can look back and say, oh man, it was kind of destined for me to be an addiction medicine doctor. There's tons of addiction, on both sides of my family. Alcoholism, very severe cocaine addiction, also other mental health disorders, schizophrenia, personality disorders, bipolar disorder, ADHD for sure. And so, and and our family always had a very compassionate, embracing approach. Like you do not get kicked out of the family, that we can set boundaries and you know, there are things that we have to protect ourselves from some of the symptoms of the illness, but we love you and you can always come home type of thing. And so, I mean, looking back, my bringing up definitely laid the foundation for me to be the addiction doctor and psychiatrist that I am today. Right on. Um, I got you. And it's interesting though, what you just said, because there are so many different schools of how addicts should be treated. You know what I mean? There is the, you can always come home and then there's the tough love. Mm-hmm. You know, then there's the like, I've given you too much. You don't know how to function without mm-hmm. me doing it for you. Like, where, what's the line in the sand or is that too general a question? I mean, it's a very general question. And of course, it's a really nuanced answer that is difficult. But in general, the basic, this is my belief. There's also evidence that supports this. The basic building block of health is relationship and connection and meeting. That's kind of like the basic building block of a purposeful life, right? And you can in some ways define health, physical and mental as purpose. And so the reason it's a fine line is because the symptoms of this illness can be very painful and devastating and damaging. And sometimes as a support and loved one, like you have to draw a boundary to be able to protect yourself. Uh, But the way that I try to get people to conceptualize it Apart from this tough love, you have to hit rock bottom because for a lot of people, rock bottom is dead, right? So like, we don't want you to have to hit rock bottom. I try to always put it in the context of another medical illness. So like, are we going to wait for you to have a heart attack before we start addressing your risk factors? No. When you have cancer, terminal cancer, very severe, is that extremely hard on your loved ones? Yes, but do we take tough love out on you? No, right? And so if we think of substance use disorders and addiction as medical illnesses, we can hate, 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 hate the illness. Where I think we go wrong is because the symptoms of the illness feel like personality, and the symptoms of the illness feel like choices, and the symptoms of the illness feel like F you, right? Even though they're symptoms of the illness because that's they're expressed emotionally, in thinking and decisions and behaviors, then we start to mix up that that person is the illness. And right. that person is not the illness. That person has the illness, right? It, it's very complex, though. It's very, very complex. Very, and the thing that I always talk about and believe is like, 
I could never quantify how on one day something clicked in my head and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I, I had used forever. And I mean, I, I had hit a bottom that I just couldn't deal with it. And all, but it was the first time that I saw a solution. It was the first time that I considered the possibility of not getting high. And I figured like, it was an amazing moment. And then the way I built on that moment is I started going to meetings every day Mm -hmm. and I worked a program and I took suggestions. That's, that's how I did it. Um, and, and Chris, who I told you about, who I started the show with had worked a program and he, he drifted away from his program and he, I got injured and Mm. who knows what else had happened. And he never, I don't, as much as we talked about the, the potential fatality of this thing, he didn't see it. And he kept airing that way until his bottom was death. And I always talk about you don't know what it's going to be that saves your life or what it's going to be that ends it. You know, it's very mysterious. But what I'm yeah. hearing you talk about is that the right kind of care really pay, pays close attention to every move that the recovering addict makes. You know, the right kind of care, like, makes the addict engaged in a relationship, makes the addict engaged in their lives. And, and I always say that, too. Like, I heard... uh Years ago, I heard Robert Duvall on the Howard Stern show, and Howard Stern asked Robert Duvall what kept him away from drugs, and, and Robert Duvall said, hobbies, hobbies, hobbies. And I always, like, I take that big time. Like, yes. as long as I'm busy, the chances of me getting high are, are just way diminished, you know? And it sounds like that's what you guys do. You work at a place called Eleanor Health, and it seems like Eleanor Health is very involved in making sure addicts have relationships and making sure addicts stay Occupied, right? Yes, yes. So I'm so glad you mentioned Eleanor Health. I'm co-founder and chief medical officer, and we are doing it differently, right? And there are a lot of different reasons why we can do it differently. Just like I would bet if you look back, you say one day something just clicked in my head. I would bet there was a person that you trusted that treated you with compassion and without judgment that had something to do with that click. Well, the I would go because, to Vegas and put all my money on black. Well, I'm sure you would. The click, <laughs> the click, the click was um, my wife said, you're not going to see your kid again, you know, without without me being there. And then I went to the meeting and an old dude said, I want to see you back here. So it was so, both things. It was So it was it's both. relationship, though, right? It was yeah, the yeah. relationship with your kids that that held enough salience to be able to jump over the the chemical hostage that your brain was under. And then right? all of a sudden, like, all sorts of beautiful logic things swept in, like, totally. I'm 40, you know, I'm 40 and I've done nothing. Like, what would my life be in 20 years from now if I don't just do drugs for 20 years? You totally, know? totally. So at Eleanor Health, we have that same fundamental belief, which is that the relationship underlies the beginning, the middle, and the ongoing of health, right? And so unlike other treatment providers where you basically have to be ready to come in and say, like, I'm going completely abstinent, I'm not using anything ever right now, or else they don't have anything to offer you, we take the whole person that comes in the door. So when you come in the door, we're like, what matters to you? What hobbies did you used to have that you loved? Who was important in your life that you don't have anymore? What benefit 
has this drug been giving you? Because humans don't do things that don't bring us benefit, right? How can we get those benefits some other way? And then let's look at the consequences because it's always a risk. It's always a benefit consequence. And this is, I'm sure, part of how you've stayed sober, right? Is It's not that some stressful part of your life didn't come or life didn't bring you something. I know for sure something in your life has triggered your brain to think about using. But your brain is at a point where you can do this risk-benefit analysis and have enough space between that thought and making the choice to not use. We pour so much, mm, what's the word that I want to use? Like we think we have ultimate control over our brains and we don't. And so when you're in active addiction, literally the part of the brain that's responsible for recognizing that the negative consequences are putting everything else at risk, that part of the brain is sick. That part of the brain is in duress. So when we look at people and say like, you should know, it's like actually the part of the brain that should know is like jacked right now. Right? It, that part of the brain is all fucked up on drugs. Okay. It can't be like relied upon to make it. It cannot be relied upon, right, to 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 make a decision. Have and clarity. so to have clarity. And so at Eleanor Health, what we believe is like, one, we want the relationship with you even while you're still using. Because we know we can reduce the risk that you're going to die. We can reduce the other harm that substance use disorders bring to your life, even if you're not completely and utterly abstinent. What is the first goal, right? So stone's throw. Take one step. What is the first goal? Let's work on getting to that. What's the next one? Let's work on getting to that. We believe in a lot of autonomy. But what I tell my people is just like, above all else. And we have boundaries, you know, and we try to help people make good decisions and all this kind of stuff. But to your point, above all else, we don't approach our relationships as the authority, right? Like, yes, we have medical expertise. We have clinical expertise. You have yourself expertise. And we value both of those equally. So we try to come at all of our relationships horizontally because a lot of people like you Early on in life, it's like authority, goodbye. And the very first whiff you give of somebody like, I know better for you than you know for you, you lose them and they're out the door. And so we don't accept at Eleanor Health, we don't accept intentionally or accidentally pushing people out the door. Right. And I don't want this. I mean, as much as I admire the work you guys do at Eleanor Health, we can't be doing an Eleanor Health commercial on this show. Come on. (laughs) Well, listen. My entire life is an Eleanor Health commercial because that's my. I have two kids, thirteen and fourteen, and then I say Eleanor Health is my third baby. So no, I I'm gonna talk I about all three of my kids all the time. No, I under, I understand that, and and it's like I want to say one more thing about this, and then I want to get to the the Dopey Nation's questions because yeah. because you're an expert and you take questions and you answer yes. questions, and my audience, the Dopey Nation, has good questions. But I just want to ask this because as somebody who's been to six billion places, mm. mostly shitty ones, you know. Mm. Um, every one of them has somebody like you saying this place is different because mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. We actually treat the whole person. We mm-hmm. do this. We care about this. We care about that. And still, you know, there's a billion failures and a yep. billion people who don't get treated properly. You know what yep. I mean? Like, is it, it? It's like it can't be really possible to have 
is it possible to have a facility that's so much superior than every other one? Is that possible? Yeah. You, so you, it you actually hear, is, you hear my judgment here. I hear your judgment. I, I hear your judgment, and I'm going to raise you some facts, uh-oh, uh-oh. right? So it definitely is possible. Number one, when you walk in a place, you can tell if they care about you or not, right? And so for too long in the addiction industry, we have tolerated places that don't care about the human being that walks in the door. They care about the diagnosis. They care about the medications they're going to prescribe. They care about the revenue they're going to generate. But actually crafting an individual experience for that. The other thing is we have to get to the point where places are proving like, all right, if you say your program is different, prove it. Where's your data? Where's your metrics? Where's your evidence, right? And so part of what we're doing, I know it's not Eleanor Health commercial, but Eleanor Health, what we're doing, right? When you walk in the door, he's laughing at me, y'all. When y'all walk in, when you walk in the door, like we're putting numbers on what you're experiencing. So you come in, we're scaling your depression, number, scaling your anxiety, number, scaling your recovery capital, which is your connectedness and the things that reduce risk of relapse, number, scaling your trauma, number, scaling your craving, number, scaling your satisfaction with the care that we're providing, number, scaling what percent of our people felt cared for, respected, and that we were professional and knew what we were doing, number. So I can spout all of those for you right now. I can tell you over 60% of our people experience an improvement in their depression within their first eight weeks. I can tell you that number is 49% for anxiety. I can tell you both our depression and anxiety scores are up since COVID. I can tell you 98% of the people that have been with us since September feel cared for, respected, and that we were professional. I can tell you that 75% feel like their lives have gotten better. I can tell you 100% have a higher recovery capital score, right? So if you go to a place and they can't rattle off their numbers like that, raise your eyebrow. Right. But how often do you give them the barbecue brisket that you gave your (laughs) trailer for the graduation? I mean, don't be telling my secrets. Come on, man. Do do any of the people get get barbecue at Eleanor Health on a good day or no? That doesn't happen. Yes. Actually, we feed our people on good days. All right, good. I'm happy to (laughs) hear that. On bad days, too. Sometimes bad days is when you need the brisket. You need that good food if you're getting better. You need the (laughs) good food. For sure. For sure. All right, so we have some pretty some pretty great questions. I think okay. I'm pretty happy with the questions that we got because our our audience is a, our audience is a fucked up and eclectic bunch, and I'm very proud to be one of them and a part of this thing with them. And this is a dude on Twitter who's a he's a character. He calls himself Taser, and he says, "I was wondering if you could ask where people can find help to get off methadone maintenance in particular. I found weaning very difficult and can't find detox centers who take methadone patients. My testicles are going up inside my body and it hurts my scrotal sacs tight. I don't know why he needed to bring his testicles into the question, (laughs) but... I mean, I think maybe he's just trying to help me understand how difficult a time he's having. And um, testicles and scrotum is the perfectly fine way to send me that message. Um, so this is actually really hard thing that people deal with to the switch that you would be talking about making would either be tapering methadone all the way down to zero, which for the reasons he recommended, uh, for the reasons he stated, I don't recommend the withdrawal from methadone is excruciating and long and prolonged and awful. Um, but also after you taper completely to zero from methadone, your risk of overdose death is dramatically higher in the coming weeks, right? So I don't want you to do that. The problem is the way we've structured methadone in this country is that you can only get it from a methadone clinic. 
for substance use disorder. And so I need you at the methadone clinic to talk to that doctor there, get you tapered down to 30 milligrams a day. Once you get to 30 milligrams a day, you call a place like Eleanor Health, right, that can do buprenorphine induction for you. And you have to wait it out for two days because methadone has a really, really long half-life. So if we give you the buprenorphine too early, we're going to make you sick. But a place like uh, you find, you make your appointment on that third day when you're in mild with uh, mild to moderate withdrawal. So I'm sure Taser knows what withdrawal feels like, right? Like dope sick, shaky, queasy, blah, blah, blah. Once you feel yourself, I tell people scale it on like a scale of one to ten. Once you feel yourself at four or five on that scale of ten, you can start buprenorphine. And you do your buprenorphine, and then at that point, once you get to five, so before your withdrawal symptoms are at five, buprenorphine is actually going to make your withdrawal worse. Once your symptoms get to like five out of ten, you know how severe your symptoms get, buprenorphine will actually make it better. So work with your methadone clinic, get that dose down to 30 milligrams, it's usually going to be two days, you'll start to feel your withdrawal symptoms come up. When you feel like, oh, this is about four or five, that's when you take the first um, buprenorphine dose and you want to get to 12 to 16 milligrams by day two, if at all possible. I, I was on methadone for years and years and years. And, Awful uh, to get off of, right? Well, I got off of it in exactly that way. I, I think I did actually a blind uh, a blind wean though at my clinic, yeah. so I, I wasn't sure where I was at until mm-hmm. I was at thirty. And then I, I got on the buprenorphine in a clinic in California, uh, coming off of thirty, and it was like still new when I mm-hmm. when I did it, and the buprenorphine hit me like speed. Like it made me so uncomfortable and, and crazy, and maybe it just happened too fast. It was too quick, you know. But I remember, like, they asked me if I wanted methadone when I got there, and I was like, I just got, I just took a year to get off of methadone. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I don't want to detox methadone with methadone. Right. So they gave me the buprenorphine, but it hit me like speed, and it was like very uncomfortable. And uh, I wound up getting kicked out of that place because um, mm. some Armenian dude got somebody to throw him dope over the wall and and everyone scrambled in the place to do the dope and half of the people that scrambled to do the heroin were already blocked and they didn't even realize including me i like did the heroin and i was blocked yeah so it was ridiculous it was but that's the insanity of this whole thing well tell your listeners go on md calc c-a-l-c okay md like medical doctor c-a-l-c like calculator mdcalc.com Look for a scale called the CALS, Clinical Opiate Withdrawal Scale. If you want to be really, really careful about it, you can scale yourself on that CALS and you do not want to take your first buprenorphine dose until your score is eight or higher. So I gave you a quick, a dirty, like rate your scale on a one to 10. But if you want to be super careful about it to make sure you don't make yourself sick, go to mdcalc.com, get the Clinical Opiate Withdrawal Scale. It's called the CALS. And you want your score to be eight or higher before you start your buprenorphine. All right, Taser. So get on this cows thing. And, and ch- if, you, if you're really going to get off methadone, first of all. So let's just, Taser, you can do it. You do, do the right thing. You can thing. do it. You can do you it. You can do it. All right. Now, the, this next question is another Twitter question. And this dude is, uh, these guys are all really great Dopey Nation members. This guy calls himself uh, Graves because he actually digs graves. That's oh, his wow. job. And um, and he's been in and out of um, of recovery, and he's been struggling. And he just relapsed, and he relapsed to the point of overdosing 
in front of his child, I think a five-year-old, and he was pronounced dead, you know, and he, and he just came back into the kind of dopey circle and asking for help and this and that. And he asks, is there a point of no return after using for so long that your pleasure centers are just burned out? If not, how long does it take for them to return? 10 plus years of using something to numb my brain. And that's from Graves. And first of all, I just need to answer that. Yes, your pleasure centers come back. I use forever and I obviously feel pleasure all the time. Even talking to the good doctor in Zynga is making me feel pleasure. But why don't you handle the, the science side of this doctor? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm definitely reinforcing Dave's answer to you there. Please don't ever lose hope because the brain is extraordinarily resilient right? Even, I mean, I've taken care of people 20, 30, 40 years, hardcore, very severe drug addiction, multiple drugs, and they can get better, but it takes a whole 360 degree approach, right? So you've got to address whatever was, you know, I'm a psychiatrist in your childhood and your upbringing, right? So substance use disorders are biological. Your brain was different, probably from the time you were born. If you had early, um, experiences that were traumatic or neglect or unstable that literally changes your DNA. We call it epigenetics. And so that further compounds your risk for getting addicted. And so you have to address that. You have to address any depression, anxiety, other mental health disorder. You have to address any other physical disorder. And then, so high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, whatever, because all of the chemicals in our bodies and brains speak the same language, even though the symptoms come out differently. And then you have to be, so thank God you're part of the dopey nation, right? Like you have to be in a supportive, compassionate, where you can just truly talk about the troubles that you're having and be accepted and not judged. Like you have to be like, I overdosed and was pronounced dead in front of my five-year-old. And you have to have a, a support system that says like, that must have been awful, not, oh my God, you're awful. Right. right. It's, it's a very, very important distinction. And so just thinking about neurobiologically, yes, there's this specific um, brain factor. It's called BDNF, brain derived neurotropic, neurotrophic factor. And basically what it does is regenerate brain. Right. And so we know under great conditions, like when you're getting dopamine signals from the good doctor in Zynga Harrison and when you're eating brisket and, you know, pastrami from cats and when you're hanging out with the kids and you're sunbathing on the beach, if that's what does it for you or skiing in the mountains, whatever, those types of experiences actually increase BDNF, which repairs your brain and produces chemistry that helps pre- uh, prevent relapse in the future. So I want to, I want to, this is funny, Dave, because usually I'm like hardcore and the very first time somebody's like addicts, I'm like, ooh, I'm language militant and I want to push back on that. I don't push back on you because that's your own lived experience. You won't hear me call people with addiction addicts because it's not my own lived experience and I try to see people as more than the addiction, right? right. But what I am going to put, so I'm not pushing back on that because whatever, I know my place. What I am going to push back on is Uh-oh. when you said he relapsed. What I do want people in the dopey nation is to get away from this concept that it's the person that relapsed because it's the illness that relapses. Yes, the person uses drugs, but that drug use is a symptom of an illness. So like when a woman has breast cancer and the breast cancer recurs, we don't say that woman relapsed. So we say this, this person had a, had a reoccurrence of their illness. Yeah, so Graves, or the illness Graves, relapsed. 
blame it on the illness, right? Because it's the right. illness that sucks. It's not Graves that sucks. It's interesting. It's because, like, I talked to Graves after this happened, and he was talking to me about how he needs to be stronger and mind over matter. And me coming from a, a 12-step background, I said, it's the opposite. You need to give up and say, this is done. You, you can't go on with this. This fight is not a fight you can win. You need to say, I can't do drugs. I can't fight doing drugs. I need to be out of that battle. That battle, yep. I, can't, I can't be in that battle. And, and in terms of like me designating Graves as relapser, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying. It is the illness, but I never talk like that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I know okay. that. Because what did I, I think, say in the pre-interview? I said irreverent. <laughs> I know you said that in the show. You, in the pre-interview. Oh, it was the show? Yeah, that, that was the, the interview show. interview? Oh. That was the actual interview. That, that was <laughs> vibing during the show. With love and compassion and full acceptance. Yes, ma'am. Um, but my point is, as an addict, like, and I don't know. I think it's controversial and I think it's all semantical in a way. It's a lot of language and stuff. It's like I, I personally like... And I, I don't like to even say this kind of stuff, but I know for me, I make the decision every day to mm-hmm. not use. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it's not my illness or my recovery. It, it's, it's, it's my life. You know what I mean? Yep. And, it's like, and I'm choosing to, to live like as free an experience as I can. And, I, and I, only, I only want people to be as happy as they can and joyful as they can and free as they can, including Graves, who I love. Um, so like... I don't. I, I want him to know that he has some say in this whole thing. Yes, you know what I, mean? I, I absolutely love that. So I, I grew up celebrating Kwanzaa, and the second day of Kwanzaa is Kuchichagulia, self-determination, to name ourselves, define ourselves, and speak for ourselves instead of being named, defined, and spoken for by others. So that's why I said I would never presume to be able to tell you how to name yourself how to define yourself, how to speak for yourself, right? Because that's an autonomy that you have to retain, right? And so you're like, every single day, I choose not to use. Every day, I choose to be sober. Every day, I choose to get my dopamine signal from something that's not a substance. I honor that choice. That's my responsibility to honor and lift up that choice. And what about Umoja, the unity that brings us together? Come on now. Come on. Um. (laughs) I could sing the song, but I'm not going to sing the song. Um, all Actually, right. I now we got like another great sing. question that I love okay. this question. It's from another amazing uh, dopey fan named Josh. He's from upstate New York. He says, what is the best treatment for post-acute withdrawal symptoms, anxiety, and depression? And this is, a, I think, a really interesting question because we get away from the, uh, you know, heroin or, or a benzo or whatever, and then we're in that, you know, the, the, the acute period is hell but the post-acute period is almost more hell because it's lingering it's in your it's in you you feel you say it's in your bones but it's in your soul it's like and it lingers and and is there medication or would we is, is there something else yeah so thank you for asking this question because the first thing is that a lot of people who are taking care of addiction completely and utterly underestimate the difficulty that is post-acute withdrawal syndrome, P-A-W-S, right? And part of that is because we're so medically focused. It's like, all right, the acute withdrawal syndrome will kill you if it's alcohol or benzos, will make it feel like it's killing you if it's opioids. So manage the acute withdrawal syndrome and then good luck living, right? What we know about post-acute is while it's less physical, it is very, very much physiological, 
coming from changes in the brain. Like the brain is in recovery, right? It's trying to recover. And so this is part of um, Graves' question also, maybe how long does it take to recover? We know that the shortest period of time is a month, and it depends on what you're using. So this is different for different substances, different substances within different classes. But as short as a month for your brain... to even start getting back to its baseline chemistry, but as long as two to three years, right? Because there's a lot that has to happen. And so the depression, the anxiety, the irritability, the inability to sleep, the sensitivity to pain, the increased perception of all of the sensations that are happening in all of our bodies at all times, but that our brain is not paying attention to, the post-acute withdrawal brain is extremely sensitive to those. And so one is finding a therapist that actually recognizes the syndrome of post-acute withdrawal syndrome. You need a lot of emotional support, a lot of education. And then, yes, there are symptomatic things you can do. So for my folks who are really struggling with um, pause, post-acute withdrawal syndrome, if depression is a salient feature, I tell them, listen, I'm not relegating you to a lifetime of antidepressant. Depending on what the rest of your history is, I might ask us to discuss that. But for right now, dude, we have got to create some foundation for you to be able to do the rest of the non-medication work that goes along with keeping this illness in recovery. And when you're having so much emotional pain and so much physiological pain and pain sensitivity and irritability and inability to sleep and anxiety, that is undermining your ability to do the rest of the work that is necessary in early recovery. So you want to do anxiety medication, stay away from benzos, please. Benzos are the plague. They are not good for you. They are extraordinarily addictive. You don't want another problem. So, But there are anxiety medications that are not benzos. SSRIs like Prozac, Lexapro, et cetera, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, sleep medications. Um, Neurontin is a great one. Like There are a lot of recommendations, but just find somebody who knows what pause is, who can do that biological piece, but also the psychological and social support that you need. Right. And, and, and a I, lot of it is for, sorry, sorry. No, please. I cannot talk about pause without talking about the importance of supporting family members, because a lot of what happens with pause is that you don't look physically sick. You stopped using drugs, and so your loved ones and support system just expect you to immediately be better, and you're not. And so a lot of family education to help them understand pause so that they're not accidentally making you feel worse when you already feel bad in that early recovery period. Right. And what I was going to say is it's another case of where relationships can really significantly make things better. Hobbies, sunshine, fucking TV, ice cream, 12 step, whatever you can do to feel good, you do it. I mean, I mean, I know that when I was in post-acute withdrawal syndrome, I would I would get I would just want the day to end, but I'd mm-hmm. want the day to be as good as it could be. I would go to bed early so I didn't sit up with the struggle, you know. And I mean, I get a lot yeah. of uh, great pleasure out of television and sugar and chocolate, and and I say like whatever can make you feel like life is tolerable, you embrace it as long as I it's agree. not dangerous, you know. Yeah, exactly. As long as it's not bringing you negative consequences, go for it. And in uh, in Zynga's new show, In Recovery, she covers, like, the spectrum of uh, of addiction. And uh, I find that to be interesting because one of the, you know, when I was talking to Jessica, she was like, one of the things in Zynga is going to cover is 
in, in frequent masturbation, addiction to masturbation. So like, like this is a good one for the dopey nation because they're constantly chronically masturbating. So like what, <laughs> what constitutes too much masturbation is the question. Yeah, it's the same answer for anything. So the way we're defining addiction on in recovery is continued use, if it's drugs, but continued engaging in whatever behavior, even though the negative consequences are outweighing the positive consequences, right? Ah. So we know there are benefits of masturbation, period. I don't think anybody's going to fight me on that. But at the point masturbation is causing you negative consequences, whether that's emotional, shame, guilt, time, relationship trouble, being late to work, right? Like once negative consequences chafing. start to arrest, chafing, absolutely. Although there are other interventions, yes, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes. So at the point, <laughs> he's giving me this look. At the point that the negative consequences start to outweigh the benefits, but you feel compulsively unable to change your pattern around that behavior, might be dealing with addiction. Okay, I love that. So fill in the blank, fill in the blank with whatever word. Right, right. If it's ice cream, if it's masturbation, if it's totally. work, if it's exercise, when the if it's when brisket. the consequences outweigh the benefits of the thing. There it is. Then you're in this this realm of addiction. I'm telling yep. you, Lemonada should have put me with you on this show. It would have been fire. It would have been a fucking fire show. I feel Forget it. I feel the fire right now. All right, that's what I'm saying. You're, the, 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 the synapses are firing. The synapses are firing. I now, promise you I didn't pay him to make that joke. That's no joke. It's surreal. I see the synapses firing in your head. It's all happening. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Um, now, another great Dopey Nation member, his name is Scott Wick. They, they do this thing in the Dopey Nation now with the, the COVID time is they do mm-hmm. uh, dopey meetings every day, these dopey Zoom meetings and the Dopey Nation oh, I love it. communes, and it's beautiful. And Scott Wick has a tradition of asking uh, the, the members to talk about their favorite ice cream and or taco. I'm not, I want to hear your favorite ice cream and your favorite taco. What the hell? In honor of the Dopey Nation Zoom. Totally. So... My favorite ice cream is dulce de leche. Have you heard of it? Have I heard of it? It's too subtle for me. I need to be hit (laughs) over the head with my ice cream. You know what I'm saying? I need need chocolate, chocolate chip. I need something. I need chocolate, chocolate chip with peanut butter and then more chocolate chips. And And a chocolate ribbon. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I need to go fucking all out with my... That's just me, though. Dulce de leche is delicious. Well, so I didn't say... Listen, I didn't say I eat my dulce de leche naked. Well, tell us what you do with... what. Give us your dulce de leche experience. What's my, the ultimate, so, ultimate? Yeah. The ultimate, ultimate, it would actually be dulce de leche as the base. Throw me a peanut butter and a caramel ribbon in there. And some butterfinger pieces. And wow. some crack, yes, yeah, some graham crackers on top. See, I like graham That would be the ultimate. Butterfingers, I find to be, they stick a little. Oh, no, they don't stick to your teeth. I'm thinking of those, uh, those, uh. What are those fucking things that stick no, to your teeth? No, Butterfinger sticks to your teeth. Yeah, they're too sticky. I don't they are I don't, sticky. I, I, but I, you I, know what? I accept this. I accept Butterfinger stickiness. But Butterfinger is, is the, that's the crispity, crunchy. Yeah. You know, Butterfingers are good. But that's, again, it's too subtle for me. I want uh-huh. Reese's. I want the Reese's peanut butter cup. You're like decadent. Yeah, I like that bougie Reese's 
peanut butter cup with the dark chocolate, the expensive ones. Break oh. them up. Put it in the real vanilla bean. With I'm with you on the ribbons. Oh, man. You got some high-priced taste buds, Dave. And I was addicted to heroin. For, I was shooting hundreds. Come on. Um, yeah, I like the decadence. <laughs> but I appreciate your subtlety. And tacos, this is, I don't, what's, what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite taco, doctor? So, um, I didn't know the question was going to be fa- like favorite taco. Like I had to choose a type of taco. I was going to say, who doesn't like tacos? I love them. But if I had like a taco, like you see me reliving the experience, yes. was this fish taco that I had on vacation okay. that had like jicama in it. And jicama. it was, oh, it was beautiful, but also Quite possibly, the entire vacation wraps into my memory of that fish taco. So I don't know if fish taco is my favorite taco, but that one fish taco that I ate on that beach vacation is my favorite taco of all times. Doctor, I see you on Top Chef recounting this memory with the chefs, talking about your food memory and all this stuff. Make it happen. Make it happen. Dude, it could happen for you, doctor. I love to eat. So if I went on Top Chef, I'm trying to be a judge. Dude, I could see. You know what I mean? I couldn't make it on the cooking side. They would be like, get out. Well, that's a hobby that I've tried to pick up in my uh, oh. in my recovery. I love it. I'm not great at it, but I I just I just like it. I, I think it's a creative oh, wow. process. It takes time and then you get to eat. And like, and for me, I was a kid that never thought, like I kind of had this built-in thing that I could never do anything. Like oh. I can I could never, like, the things that I wanted to do were out of my grasp. And now Mm. when I cook, it's like it's manifesting imagination into a meal that I created. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my God. That is like what you just said is like a psychiatrist dream. That was beautiful. Well, maybe I'm playing, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pandering to you. Who knows? (laughs) But uh, it was such a joy to have you on. It was so much better than I expected it to be. Um, So I didn't expect much from you, doctor, just so you know. Oh, well, That's a I am compliment. glad to have exceeded your expectations. No, you were awesome. You were awesome. I'm just playing. And thank you for coming through, and, uh, and let's do it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it again. Thanks, right Dave. On. Thanks, doctor. Bye. <laughs> Bye. So that was an amazing thing, and Z- Dr. Nzinga Harrison. And I'm going to reflect on the greatness that was that segment with Dr. Nzinga Harrison, and it will be very contrasting with the terrible nature of the next segment with one of my dearest dearest friends he hasn't been on the show in a long time his name is jim welcome back thank you very much and i too very much enjoyed i thought that was one of your best interviews i think maybe you've ever done not just because she was so knowledgeable and and like funny and just had answers to all of those questions there was zero hesitation on her part but also you guys you guys were as you said vibing well there was she's a lot of vibing she, going on there do you think i i sounded like i was trying to sound too black like i think i said i feel you once did you hear me say i feel you but she's but she you know i mean yes to some degree yes but um i think i think you have a way like the answer is yes but it's not so much uh it's a little, it's larger than that. Like you have a way of trying to like mirror or mimic the people who are on or anyone you're talking to really to get them to feel more comfortable. It's like, a, a, it, you know, it's an old school manipulation. Technique. 
Yes. But you can, yes, manipulation perhaps, but it, you know, puts people at ease and, and, uh, you know, even if they know what you're doing, like, you know, it's, it's like effort on your part. I don't like to say, can I feel you? You know, I'm not interested in saying, can I feel you? That feels, I was, I, I, it, me saying, can I feel you echoed in my brain. I, I, I had this conversation with Dr. Nzinga Harrison last week and can I feel you has been echoing around my brain. Cause I don't say, can I feel you? All I have to say is that Dr. Harrison was incredible and that all I could think was what an amazing podcast that would be not dopey. And she has a podcast called In Recovery, and I can't imagine. I mean, maybe she's just so fucking great that on In Recovery she's got chemistry like that with whoever she does it with, her producer. But I can't imagine that that show would be as good as a podcast with me and her. It would be like the ultimate, you know, drug addiction recovery show that wasn't the dopey, you know? Well, the I mean, yeah, the, there was a... There was great chemistry between the two of you. I just want to, there was one thing about the very end of that interview, the very, very end of that interview. You told her, um, you told her that you weren't, that you hadn't, that it had gone much better than you expected and that you hadn't expected very much. That's true. But you didn't say why. Was it because she was a doctor? There's a lot of reasons. Do you want to know why? Well, yeah, I, I, I was I, like, I cringed when you said that because it was like, oh, it had gone so well. And then he, you said this thing. She laughed it off and she seemed fine. But I cringed and I was like, I was thinking if that had been me, I might. I, I was just worried that she I didn't want her to be offended. Like, No, I felt very, very, very. I knew that it would disarm her. Me like setting the expectation low post this, the killer segment because um and and the re- I mean I I knew that if I made fun of I was making fun of her like that I didn't have a good expectation and she liked it but the reason that I didn't have an expectation was one because she's a doctor and she's a she's a person of authority that deals with addiction and and I usually cringe at those kinds of people yeah that that's exactly what I was thinking and then two because you even, I, you even said that during the during the. Uh, during the interview. Right. You say that a few times. Well, but I think it's important because I don't, like, I, I've never had, like, a teacher that I've liked or that I, you know, that I vibed with or whatever, and I, I just, I've, I've never been the person that vibes with authority. You know, it just, it just didn't happen for me. And, I, and, I, and that's something that I feel badly about, too, looking back. You know, I... I she, you know, she, she, said, uh, she said something about... Um, she kind of talked about like like connecting to a mentor or something you know that that that's often a key to 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 kind of stepping out of the hole um i mean she couched it in in terms of just having a human connection and i felt like you, you flipped it and said well you you didn't have a mentor you had nora essentially um and but do you, was there any kind of like 12 step mentor or like a person nothing was there anything like that well, yeah, I mean, I had a sponsor, you know, when I finally got, when I finally got my shit together, um, you know, I don't think it was because of Nora. I think it was because I was, Nora was a huge piece of why I became ready. Um, and then I just took suggestions and I got a shitty sponsor and then I got a sponsor that I really liked and, um, and I did what he suggested and it worked. But I mean, another thing about the thing within Zynga is like, and it's something that I didn't say, but afterwards, right. You know, Nora has a friend, and uh, her friend 
has two parents who are heroin addicts, okay? And um and they're using or or they're in and out of treatment. You know, they're not you know, they're they don't have time in recovery. And um and like I'm imagining these two people in Dr. Harrison and in Zynga's facility. And like what if they don't care about the relationship? What if they don't fucking give a shit about hobbies? What if they cannot make a connection? How do they get treated? You know, and I wish I, I had thought of that with her because, you know, you have, you can go down a litany of things that will make somebody do better, but what if they don't? You know what I mean? Like, I had a million reasons to get well. I had a million great relationships, you know, throughout my addiction. Sure, like, my friendships waned, but I always had them. I just wasn't interested in them when I was interested in getting high. It's like, it just seems like I feel like treatment is, it must be incredibly tricky. But I want to ask you this because this is okay. a dopey episode that, um, you know, it's one of the only dopey episodes that'll probably be with two people that aren't oh, yeah. addicts. Um, as somebody who's not an addict, what did you take away from uh, just her and her approach to addiction and like and all that stuff? Well, uh, <laughs> not having really thought about this ahead of time. Um, the her holistic approach. I mean, the, the, she kept saying that she was focused on the person as opposed to being focused on the treatment or or the you know the drugs they're taking or you know that the ailment, but actually the whole person. That sounded that sounded right to me. I mean, I'm uh, I'm not dealing with addiction right now, but I am dealing with. Um, you know, this is a very crazy time to have children and to have uh, uh, my father passed away four months ago and his widow is having a very, very hard time during all of this. And, and she's experiencing, I think some very serious depression and um, you know, and, and I think that uh, the connection the doctor made between addiction and really any kind of mental illness is, is valid you know because it's you're dealing with the same stuff it's it's the same like how do you stop someone from doing something that's hurting them habitually they're so in, they're so used to it and i i i'm I, sort of what i'm trying to deal with her and and i you know i'm not an addict in terms of drugs but i have all kinds of crazy patterns that i absolutely have to get out of in order to like get to the next level of life and and I, this whole COVID thing is like forcing me to to take a real hard look at the kind of uh, the autom- like being an automatic. Like I, I have to be in manual right now because every day requires, you know, with with a almost three year old and almost six year old and a and a wife in grad school and trying to build a teaching career and our career and all this stuff happening at the same time. Um, it is, uh, it is madness. And, uh, and, and you have to be, you know, you know, you have to be taking care of yourself. And, uh, I think, I think that's part of what it's always like, I've always connected to Dopey in part because I like hearing your voice. You know, I, I listened to Dopey while I was in Russia for 10 years, um, or for many of those years, and it, and it you know kept me connected to home, but I think also I just I'm not great at taking care of myself, you know. And and I you know a lot of the stories I hear 
touch me on that level. And, 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 you know, the, the, the stories of people, you know, not taking care of themselves, but also the stories of people like actually changing. Right. Well, I think that the, the one thing that she didn't touch on, and it's something that is always kind of circling dopey and, and it's definitely like, it's like the biggest component to me getting well is like this spiritual component that I never talk about um, because it freaks me out because it's culty and it's weird. And it's like, it seems like schmaltzy and put on and she didn't mention any, did she, I mean like remind me, did she mention spirituality at all? Like, I don't think she did. No, no. I mean, she was just, she was most, uh, it probably, I'm guessing that that falls under the, under the auspices of like hobby or, you know, she, she talked about, you know, getting to know the patient's whole life and, and to see, you know, what could they, what do they already have in place that they could support and, you know, what, what was missing that they needed to Listen, implement. Let's not talk about her anymore. She was great. It's done. I want to talk about <laughs> the thing that, the thing that occurs to me in, yeah. in my life. And like, you've known me, you know, since, you know, for 30 years, you've known me. Um, yeah. and you've known me well, you know, you've known me very well for 30 years. And, um, and I've always been a worrier and I've always been like somebody who bugs out. And one thing that I've learned, and, and, I, and I feel like I'm just learning it now, is like to find, and, and I don't like the term spiritual, but it's like, but it's what it is. To find a spiritual center and the spiritual center is if you do everything that you can do, then it's as good as it can be. You know what I mean? To not worry about what's not happening. Like if you try, if you, if you do everything that you can try to do, you have to be like, let's just hope it goes well at that point and, and take some comfort in, in making the effort. You know what I mean? And, like, and that you can't do anything else. That's all you can do. And I think like with you and your work or your kids or me and my work and my kids or Dopey, it's like all we can do is our best. And then it's like you got to like throw your hands up and be like it's out of my control. You know, and I think like that's like the real secret to getting better and to being okay with yourself and to being okay in the world at all. It's some kind of faith that if you try your best, if you make a sincere effort, then you've done your best and that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're supposed to be really moved by my spiritual shit. No, you're not moved. No, no, I, 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 I uh, no, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know me, I, I, I've, I mean, I mean, part of why COVID is so hard for me is that I, I've had certain things ripped out from under me. I, I, you know, later in life, I've gotten very into Judaism and very connected to the synagogue. And I was going to pray every morning for my father who, who passed away as part of the, like what you did, the ritual you do for a year. And I found that just having those 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I would take Anna to the synagogue before school and she would sort of get into it too. Um, and we would, we would pray. And during, like, I would often cry, like it would just give me a little bit of time to, to catharsis. What's that? It was meditative catharsis. catharsis. Yeah. But you're saying you don't you don't do it outside of the synagogue. You don't do it at home. I did it uh, to some degree, but it's harder. It's it's like 
it's I don't know, you know, so much of, you know, so much of Judaism is about forcing people to be together. I mean, the minion that you need 10 people in order to, to for most of these prayers to be authentic. It, it, the whole point is you are you are forcing people to be in a room together and, and to do this as a group. Uh, the community becomes much more important than than the actual prayer itself. Um, and that's what's so hard right now. They're like they're trying to do this online, and it's like I I can't get myself to do it. You know, well, that's similar. So talk- that's similar to the situation with twelve step meetings. Mm-hmm. You know, twelve step meetings, which was all about coming together and being together uh, in order to you know share your experience, strength, and hope, or share your problems, or this or that. Now it's all on Zoom. You know, and it's like it's not the same thing. You know, it's not. Yeah. A, a, but what I'm talking about is a, a f- like a faith in in that the 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 universe will take care of you if you do the next right thing you know and i don't i mean like i just think that there is i mean i never talk about it on the show and like i had been getting into all these fights with linda and i and i was i was feeling so worried about work like cuz my work is changing again like and and i and i the bottom line is just that worrying and anxiousness and suffering does not like yield happiness and good times. You know what I mean? It's like that's all I'm saying. Not, it doesn't get you any closer to perfectionism either, which is which is my 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 big my big problem. All right. I want to move on from this topic too. This topic is doing us no good. I want to tell you a funny story from today. I'm pretty sure at the end of this, you're gonna you're gonna look at me and say that was terrible. It's te- I, I, was I, I, I'll tell you now. You're, you've you've taken a show and you've you know I don't know what you're doing, but I was my I wanted to have you on the show. It's my own fault. Um, you, you you told me to you told me to think about all these things. I, yeah, know? but you think too much. I, I think a little bit. You know me for forty years almost. You don't think I'm going to think too much? Of course I think too much. That's, I, that's what I do. Yeah, I made I made a mistake. But we're going to move on, and I'm going to tell you a little story about something today, and it caused me a lot of anxiety and fear. And I don't yes. know if you know this, but like we we're in this saga at home around pets. Um, <laughs> Linda is a pet. We have one pet. We have a leopard gecko named Flash that we bought for Nora for Christmas. And Linda wanted to. Have I not been there since Christmas? No, you haven't been here since Christmas. Nobody comes out here. It's far away. Um, Christmas, you know, whatever. The COVID virus hit in fucking March. You know what I mean? It was winter. Okay. Um, So. We were going to get her a bearded dragon, and bearded dragons are much cooler than leopard geckos. Bearded dragons, like, first of all, leopard geckos are, no- are nocturnal, so they sleep all day. They do nothing. They just fucking sleep all day. You feed them some worms, and you feed them some crickets, and the bearded dragon is not nocturnal, and, it, and like you have to feed it out of your hand, and you give it lettuce and fruit. But the bearded dragon winds up being like two feet long, and you need to get it some crazy enclosure, and you basically become some weirdo walking around with a bearded dragon. It's like a whole subculture, and I was like, fuck that shit. We're going to get the leopard gecko. So we get the leopard gecko, and the leopard gecko is the, the worst pet in the history of pets, and I don't think it eats 
like I think it's starving and suffering. Like it's like a torture chamber that it has on Nora's desk. And it's just like, and she doesn't fucking clean the thing. It's sand and she doesn't. So, and Linda doesn't do it. And I'm like, I don't want to fucking take care of this thing. But she's like, you're going to do it. So, so every, so eventually I always take care of it. And eventually I always go and I buy crickets and worms. And I've never seen the gecko fucking eat anything. And I put this new batch of crickets in. And the gecko, the leper, the leopard gecko is about to die. It's starving. It's frail. It can barely move. You know, we put the crickets in and I see him get excited. And, um, and Nora thinks she sees him eat one. And the thing is that it turns out Nora and Linda are terrified of crickets. Like fucking <laughs> terrified. And not only do I feed the leopard gecko crickets, but I keep the crickets. I, I like breed crickets now. I have a separate container that just has the crickets where they live and I give it water and I give them like crumbs of cereal and stuff. And, um, and so I'm working today upstairs and linda starts screaming like you have to tell daddy you have to tell daddy and i come downstairs and i'm like what and she's like the crickets are eating flash's worms you have to get rid of the crickets because they are starving flash and i said no you're crazy flash eats the flash eats the uh the crickets we saw him go for the crickets and she's like well you need to get rid of them so I was like, all right. And um, so I go, I'm like doing 10 things. I'm like working on cats in the attic. I'm making lunch. I'm like making Linda tilapia and spinach. Like I'm like fucking doing it up. And she's like, you have to take the crickets out of the tank now. And I'm like fucking smoke is coming out of my ears. I'm like, fuck it. I'll do it. And I like throw my spatula down and I run upstairs and, and there's this piece of driftwood in the, in the tank. And I take the driftwood out, and I don't give a fuck. I just reach in the tank, and I pull the crickets out, and I kill them with my bare hands. I smash them on the fucking desk. I squeeze them out. And, like, this is after, like, I've saved all these crickets' lives. And, like, if they find a cricket in the basement, I, like, catch it, and I let it go. And, I, like, Linda's gotten me to this point where I'm just fucking murdering all these crickets in the tank, and it's just the death zone. And, um, and then I'm like, I'm like, okay. And I run back downstairs to get back to the, the food and you know, my hands covered with cricket carcass and all this shit. And, um, and Linda go, Linda starts screaming at the top of her lungs. And I'm like, Wait, who, who, who's screaming? Linda. And I'm like, what? What now? And she goes, you left the piece of wood out and the wood has got a hundred crickets on it. And I'm like, I'm like, you're fucking exaggerating. And I go upstairs and um and there's like six crickets they got on the floor and I'm killing them with my hand I'm like brah, brah, brah. and there's guts cricket guts and limbs and exoskeleton pieces and then I look at the other side of the driftwood and there's literally it's a hole in there and there's 50 crickets in there and it's like the most frightening thing I've ever seen and Linda was right all along and I, and and Flash never ate a cricket and the crickets eat the worms and they're like these horrible things, you know? So I took them all out and I, I killed all the crickets. But it was like, but, but I got so angry about it. But I was wrong. I was, to I was totally wrong the whole way through. And now I took the driftwood out. And now he's only going to get worms. And this fucking guy, 
Linda's like, fuck this gecko. She's like, let's just kill it because I don't want the fucking crickets in the house anymore. And she also gave away Nora's dog. Did you hear about that? You had a dog? We had a dog, but this sounds this sounds a lot like uh, the praying mantis. Yeah, it's a very it is a little bit similar to the praying mantis. We should get a praying mantis in here to take care of the, the crickets running around. <laughs> I mean, if you knew how scared they were of the praying mantis, why'd you end up with the crickets to begin with? I told Linda we shouldn't get a lizard. You know, I, 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 I'm not capable of getting this kind of shit done. You know what I'm saying? Like, but anyway, the point of the story is that I shouldn't have gotten so mad. And crickets are really scary when you have a lot of them in one small space. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two points of the story. Um, I'm going to read you a dopey email that I just got 20 minutes ago. Are you ready? Wait, Okay. What? And, and, uh, all right, yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. I just got it. I got it. At, it's 11.35 right now. I got it at 10.10. He says, hey, Dave, I might be headed to Mountainside in the next couple days. They gave me a good deal. I'm fucked and in the middle of the shit. It's awful out here. There's a goddamn drought and people are like hungry wolves killing each other, ripping each other off to buy what's mostly baking soda and baby teething powder cooked together with some other shit. I lost $1,200 last night and $150 today on maybe $100 worth of shit. I just hope no one gave me COVID out there. There's a UN report on the illegal drug supply chain being all fucked up. It's really interesting. I'm sure it sucks for the Colombian and Mexican cartels and American kingpins, but it really sucks on the consumer end. Trying to cop at 2 a.m. sucks when there's no one else out there uh, except other hungry dope fiends, predators, and the cops, and the occasional yuppie insomniac walking their fucking dog through the craziness. It's horrible and exhausting. I'm trying to find a ride from D.C., but people want me to get tested first. Wish me luck, man, and you can use this email, but don't say my name. Uh, P.S. You should do a show on the drought, which is the heroin drought or the drug drought. P.P.S. My drug stories are all humiliating and horrible, and there's been no victories in the last few days. You should have more of those stories on about getting ripped off, soul crushed, spending the $100 your mom sent you as a nice gesture with a heart and kiss emoji on fake drugs. That's the worst. My stories are about getting swindled and manipulated and robbed to my face. Guy takes my money and then goes into a place he says he can score and then comes back out and says they kept the money and there's nothing he can do and then proceeds to swindle more money out of you. It's horrible. I would never let someone treat me like this if I was craving. If I wasn't craving, I think is what he means. It's like being obsessed with the worst, most manipulative, most manipulative, evil, narcissistic, psychopathic and sociopathic girlfriend or boyfriend or cisgender partner in the world. Peace and love. And um, listen, I hear where this guy is coming from. I, I've been ripped off like that uh, many times. The worst one was in Austin, Texas. I went to work at South by Southwest. I, was, I had bought fake methadone. And I got sick on the plane, and when I get there, I spent like a day with some dealer who, who after spending like 10 hours with me, steals the 100 bucks. And I, 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 mean, like, I mean, that was not the only time I got ripped off. I got ripped off a million times. Um, I understand this guy's pain. I hope he goes to treatment. Uh, what do you think about that story, Jimmy? Wait. 
I want you to tell me about the drought. I don't know. I mean, dude, I don't fucking have to deal with uh, drugs. I'm assuming what he said was that COVID has disrupted the drug supply chain in North America. So like, so there's a drought of drugs. Um, I don't hear very much from, from people struggling to cop in COVID. Um, but it sounds like there's an issue. Dopey nation. If you're trying to cop in COVID and, uh, you have an interesting tale, why don't you send us an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Jimmy, what's your opinion? What's your thoughts? I see your, I just, I just been, I don't know. I've been thinking about all of the, you know, the, the, the crazy effects of COVID and how they, you know, they can suddenly see the top of the Himalayan mountains again. And there's all the, you know, the air is cleaner and all the, like there are all these weird, slightly positive effects. And I'm like, I'm wondering, are, are people, do you think people are going to, are being like forced, being forced to, to, to get clean because they just can't get their hands on stuff? No, no it's not going to work. No. Because everybody can figure something out. You wind up getting something else. You, I mean, like the, I, I read an article that people like that so many more people are being prescribed benzos because they can be. All these people freaking out are getting Xanax and Valium and Clonopin, people that wouldn't necessarily be getting them. So, like, I know that if I was using and I couldn't score dope, I would get as many benzos as I could get, you know? So, so, so it's it's being made up for with a, the medical professions. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think uh, I think a junkie. I mean, well, also the the, the, the image of uh, you know being out at two in the morning. You're not in the city, but I I am. I mean, not maybe the heart of it, but the Upper West Side here, and and it it, it it's palpably different. I mean, I, I go back. I'm outside just to go across the street between these two apartments sometimes, and sometimes late at night. Um, and I'll, this is also a downstairs apartment here right next to the street. So right outside the window, I can hear, you know, people muttering to themselves as they walk by. They're out there. Like the only people outside are people who have to be. And, they, and, and they're, they kind of own the streets now out here. Drug addicts. You know, I, I don't know if they're drug addicts necessarily or just, just like mentally ill people. But, you know, there are many more than there used to be. I think maybe they don't have other places to go. I think, you know, like they're just like, it's, it's a really different scene than I, you know, it's a little bit more like when we were growing up actually. Yeah. That's what I imagine. I imagine because it's so many less people from Dubai and other countries that are just like, sort of like catching the wave. Like when we grew up in the city, it was a much rougher place. You know, there were whores on the West side by you. There were, there were the SRO uh, buildings all over the place on the upper West side. It was yeah. it was a much different thing. I mean, I think that you'll find people on the street that need to be there. And I think that's even the case where I live. I think I was walking down the street. I saw people copying. I live in the most bucolic white person town in the universe. And I think also I saw... a lot of retired cops, right, where you are. Yeah. I mean, it's all Irish, Italian cops and carpenters and plumbers and whatever. But I, I think I saw a couple of like indigent junkie types scoring like i think i feel like i i saw that twice in sayville you know and like you don't see shit like that but nobody's in the street you know it's 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 nuts um i sent you an email did you get the email i sent you Yes, I did. Would you like? Are you ready for me to read it? Would you, I, I, I want you to read this because I think it. I like to impress you. I think it's a very like sweet and impressive email. All right, I'm ready. Um, 
This is from, I can't, is, there's no, I have no idea who this is from. It's from, say. it's from Alan. Alan in Ireland. And Alan is a, a tremendous dopey fan. He actually just lost his mother too, uh, very oh. recently uh, to COVID. And, um, oh. and he also like uh, contributed an amazing dopey theme song. Uh, he's a great fan. Anyway, please read the email. <clears throat> Hi, Dave. Alan from Ireland here. Hope you and yours are keeping well. I just listened to your interview on the Up, Upful Life podcast. As usual, your total honesty made for really great listening. But something really stuck with me in that interview when you said that listening to Howard Stern for all those years, it felt like you were with your friends. Dave, that, that feeling you have for Stern, I have it for you and Dopey. I have had a truly tough 18 months. I'm still getting over my mom's passing six weeks ago. That was recent. Uh, when, when tragically my dog, Sushi, my best friend, who I loved as unconditionally as she loved me, had liver failure and passed away on Monday. Honestly, words cannot describe how utterly sad I am. But who did I go to when I went for a head-clearing walk without my sweet Sushi for the first time in 10 years on Monday night? Dopey. Old episodes with you and Chris, my two friends that have been there for me through my breakup, my mom's passing, and now this. By the way, he writes M-U-M, so I should be saying my mom's passing, but I, I it just feels weird on my lips to say it. Um, your, your dumb shit puts even the smallest smile on my face when nothing else can. The structured episode... The gay cruise story, Todd's phone calls, Chris's meth jerking off skinhead story. You two are my buddies, keeping my mind off the horrible reality I'm in by shooting the shit, dumb or otherwise, and making me laugh. And for that, I thank you, Dave. Your show is so important, not just for the afflicted and addicted, but all of us that go through the toughest of times, knowing our friends are always there for us. I'm really struggling not not to down a bottle of whiskey or habitually popping Xanax just to numb this fucking pain, but I don't. Barely touched a drop because I know you and Chris and Todd and Ray and Amy Dresner and your dad and all the rest are there to take me away from this horrible shit. This isn't for the show. This is for you, Dave. Thank you so much for Dopey. Keep up the great work. Stay safe and toodles for Chris. Alan X. Does that mean I'm not supposed to read it on the show? I would. That is that is that is what flashed across my mind when I read that. Um, There's not. He didn't reveal anything that he wouldn't want on the show, though, right? Uh, probably not. Alan, except, it, it, his, except his mother dying six weeks ago. And no, we he did a, we did a whole time. thing about we we. I read an email from him about his mother dying. Oh, okay. Alan is like no, embedded. I, I think you know a, a lot of people are writing about you know the show and how great the show is, and he's. I think I think maybe he's just he's just trying to make sure this is directed towards you and thanking you. Right. Well, I mean, um, I appreciate that, and I think it's very beautiful. And um, you know, this this feels a lot like uh, what I was just saying. You know, these years and years in Russia when I had no one to speak English to. You know, you were like you are one of my friends, so there was there was that. But um, but I but I I it makes sense, you know. I mean, that this is this is what I'm talking about. Like this is this is this. 
your your honesty, your you know the way you listen. You disarm the show. Much every, the show does what it's arm. supposed to do. It keeps people company. Um, I'm glad it does that. I'm glad it did it for you. I'm, I mean, it, was, it always surprised me that you listened. Alan, I love that you listened. I love that you wrote such a sweet thing. You got to hear his song, Jimmy. You'll love his song. It's, it, it, it like gives me the chills to hear his song. So thank you, Alan. What? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I got, I nothing, I got nothing else. Like, I just don't want you to keep complimenting me. I wanted you to just be in awe of my greatness, but I don't want you to talk about it. <laughs> All right, I want to get back to this just for a minute. This oh, spirituality Jesus Christ. Thing you were okay. talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Because it, the, the reason I mentioned going in the morning to synagogue wasn't so much the connection of Judaism as spirituality, but what you said about like blowing off steam or catharsis, like I feel like a lot of, and this actually goes back to the, the doctor's interview and, and like dealing with the whole person, like at the root of a lot of addiction is some kind of, of deep pain for, you know, and most people have experienced some kind of deep pain and it's hard to sit with pain. It's hard to like let it flow through you and to and to really feel it and it comes back and it comes back and it's so easy to get into some kind of habitual thing with something with food, with television, with porn, with sex, with drugs, something that will, Ease will the hit pain. those certain Yeah, well not just it's not about easing the pain because really to really ease the pain is this spirituality thing, which is which is why I mentioned Judaism. For me, easing the pain was was it's counterintuitive, but it's going towards the pain. But having like a community within you know within, within which to do it and and a, like a, a, a per, like parameters. I, I go into this space and then I leave the space. Well, what you're doing I, is you're, you're specifically doing what is suggested to get through the pain. They're saying if you're in this pain, you say Kaddish every morning, you get together with some Jews and you, you say this prayer and you, you do this thing and you will get through it if you do. Just like if you're a drug addict, they say do the 12 steps and if you take our suggestions, you can get through it. It's the same thing. It's taking it's action. Just, yeah. It's taking action to deal with it as opposed to changing the channel, right? What do you mean by changing the channel? Like porn or eating or or drugs. It's like, I don't want to deal with that, so I'm going to deal with this now. So I don't have to think about that. Whereas the other thing is you take a suggestion because somebody's been through it and it worked for them. Yeah, it's just just so counterintuitive to to realize that you need... We were talking about before, you know, like, like, like needing to slow down and like sometimes you just need to actually experience whatever pain is, 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 I I talked about this a lot with you when you were, um, you know, going through the throes of things, you know, and trying to get you to, to take, like, take the blame off yourself. You know, like, like, I I feel like you, you were so upset at yourself. There was so much shame that you, 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 you couldn't, like, it was just, it was too raw. It was too red hot, you know, to, to, to get close enough to it, to, to let it out. And, but the, but the alternative consistently avoiding this thing that's in you, whether you like it or not, it, it, it just, it, 
it distorts your whole world. Well, you know? I think I think I was spun out on the pain. I didn't have any idea that I would ever get past it, and I didn't have any faith that I could get past it. So I just kept spinning on it. You know what I mean? That that was how I. That was the difference between it was. I only started to get past it when I started to believe I could, and I started to take action. You know. But if I but, but but before that, all I was doing was getting high and feeling guilty and worrying, like as 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 like that was going to solve something. You know, I sometimes I still think that. Like this morning, when I knew I had work to do, I was like, I, I was like, I'm going to worry a lot today, as though it will be some work getting work done. You know, like as long as I worry about it, I'm getting something done. It's like an old kind of me ism. You know, uh, but I, I mean, it is part, worrying is a big part of my process, no matter what it's the pre contemplative moment to attacking something is really, really worrying about it first, (laughs) giving it a good soak in worry and neuroses. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a little bit of a culturally Jewish part of your upbringing. Listen, you made this episode way too Jewish. Um, is there anything else you need to mention before we get to the end of this fucking thing? Oh god. Uh no, I think that was that was it. All right. That was it. We're going to do one more email. This is going to be exciting. You ready? Yeah. All right, this is from, you want to read it or do you want me to read it? You read the last one really well. Do you want to read the other one? Yeah. All right, do it. And I, I also want to tell you you look really nice in these glasses. I think these glasses look really good on you. Really? These are the cheapest ones I could get from the, from the, all right. That's great. Um, this is, this is, uh, from Mark. From Mark? The one you just just started to read. You fucking idiot. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, long time listener. I always hear covers. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. Mark. Right, yes, from Mark. All right, here we go. Hey, Dave, long-time listener. I always hear covers of Good So Bad, and I know how much Chris loved Forever in Debt. Anyway, I'm coming up on four years clean through NA and the 12 Steps uh, from, from Ivy Heroin and Meth. I also just call it Speedballs. I've got a, do- a dopey story from the last time I was in treatment. It was a co-ed facility, and I had heard from another client that my counselor and the staff thought I was gay, which is a very common theme in my life. Needless to say, I found myself attracted to one of the women in treatment and came out to the staff that I was gay. What? Okay. Um, They completely bought it. The worst part was I wasn't playing it up at all. I was just being myself. (laughs) Anyway, fast forward to about 30 days later, and the woman and I are completely codependent train wrecks, and I decide the best thing to do is to tell the staff that I'm not gay. I've been in rehab romance with... I've been in a re- re- in a rehab romance with ch- with chick for the past month, and I'll face the consequences. As most rehabs, you get kicked out for fraternizing with the opposite sex, so I prepared myself for that repercussion. I go to the staff and tell them everything. I'm not gay. I've been dishonest, and I've been sleeping with uh, with this chick since I arrived. She looked me in the face and said, "Honey, now is not the time to go back in the closet." Uh, and allowed me to stay in rehab and marinate in the atmosphere of my own terrible choices in early treatment. 
Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Isn't that great? You don't even understand the email. I see you have no idea what happened to this guy. I can tell. Uh, you can tell the way I read it. Yeah, I, I, I want you to explain to me what happened. I don't. Okay, I don't, the dude, the dude is straight, but he seems gay, and he that part I got. And he meets a girl in treatment that right. he likes, and he starts. So why does he tell everybody? Why does he tell everybody he's gay? He tells everybody he's gay so he can fuck the girl without them thinking that he's fucking her. And he gets into this deep relationship with her and it gets bad, you know, and he like becomes totally codependent on her. So he tells the staff that he's not gay and he's in this codependent relationship with the girl and they don't believe him. They say now is not the time to go back into the closet. And normally in a situation like that, he would get kicked out of treatment for fucking the woman, for being in a rehab relationship. But because they were sure he was gay, he doesn't. Maybe he is gay. No, he's not. He's as gay as like our friends. You know, it's like, you know. <laughs> maybe he is gay. Well, maybe he is uh, gay. But you're the worst. You don't, you don't, do you understand, do you understand how great that story is now? There's nothing funnier than a joke that you have to have explained to you. Well, do now that it's been explained to you, do you not see the irony <laughs> and the, the joy of that story? Dopey Nation, yes, yes. I, I apologize for everything about Jim. Um, I just want to play... Wait, 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 wait. You don't think that he pretended to be gay in order to get with this girl? That's what he... That's the story. He said no, to no, them, no. I mean, I mean, not not in order to be allowed to, but in order to seduce her in a way. I'm sure that was part of it. Like, I'm sure, like that, like she was into that part of him. You know, he was an unconventional guy. I was with, uh, I was with Linda tonight, and um, and uh, you know, we were talking about like these kids. You know, like like Nora, her friends, whatever. There's like so much early sexuality talk. You know, like, really? like, like, yeah, there's a lot of sexuality talk. Well, wait, is it sexuality or is it like sexual orientation? It, talk? That's yeah. Well, that's what I'm talking. That's a little different. Right. It, yeah. But it's like, but it's so loaded because it's like a 10 yeah, year old kid yeah. saying they're bisexual or whatever. So, right. So, um, I'm talking to, uh, to Linda about it and she's like, well, you and all your faggot friends from New York city, <laughs> you guys are all basically gay anyway. But I was like, yup. Um, oh, God. but it was, it was very funny. Um, anyway, I want you to hear the, the forever in debt cover. Do you want to hear it? Um, okay. Yes. Okay. Why don't you, why aren't you like, yeah, of course I want to hear it. Um, it just you, you got me thinking about this the whole binary thing. I, you know, I, I I feel about this like like anti-binary thing. The I think the way our parents or their parents' generation had to kind of like slowly wrap their heads around homosexuality in general. Do you feel that? I don't know what you're talking about. <sighs> All right, we don't have to get into this. <laughs> this is too much. You know, I, I like you know my daughter's like five, and she's it's already you know I mean she's so gender focused. She wants to be princess. She's in love with Peter Pan and like crying at night because he doesn't come. Well, but she's like, also she's she's window. from she's from Russia. She's like old yeah, world. It's different. 
It's different. Like, these these kids that are like tweens, like are exposed. Like like Pixar just put out the first movie with a gay lead character, and he has to come out to his parents. You know, some parents when we were kids would have let you dress like a girl if you wanted to dress like a girl or whatever. Now parents are so embracing. Uh, some sort of trans thing that they're going to like give their kid hormones at age 12 when they don't know what the fuck is going on with them. It's a crazy, dangerous time. And, um, but I don't want to talk about that because it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, okay. I, I say, I say, you know, let kids do what they want and accept, like, try to make sure they don't get killed, you know? Like if a kid wants to dress like a boy, let him dress like a let a let a girl dress like oh, a boy, yeah. but don't necessarily. I, I mean, I didn't even. I was trying to dress like a boy, but I ended up dressing like a girl when I was in high school. Well, your brother was so feminine in in junior high school that I thought he oh, was yeah. a girl. You know, I, I was sure he was a girl. He said, "My name's Joe," and I heard Jill, and for like six weeks, I thought he was a girl. You know, but you 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 know my story about uh, I shouldn't say her full name, but. Uh, Lori. Well, my sister? No, not your sister. Lori. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It was a it was a girl in our high school that looked masculine. Very masculine. Like she beat all the boys in in everything, in, in all sports. And she was in my homeroom. And because of her, I started. <laughs> I am definitely autistic. Because of her, I started wearing shirts with uh, shoulder pads. Because I thought that boys could do that because I saw Lori doing it. Because she looked and cool. Like, she thought she looked cool. Well, I, don't, I, I was certain she was a boy for like nine months. I saw her every single day. I was positive she was a boy. And, to the, and, and you know the story, right? And, and finally, Russell was like, you're, you're you know, I, I said, I want to, he said he referred to her as she. And I said, you mean he? And 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 Russell looked at me he's like you're being mean. And I said, "What are you talking about?" And like, and then like, you know, it dawned on me that I had been wrong for nine months. Well, what does this have to do? As my my mother would say, "What does this have to do with the cost of tea in China?" What are you What are you talking about? Like, what does this have to do? I mean, you should cut this out. I wanted to play forever in debt, and you start talking about binary shit and whatever. I mean, like, but your your daughter is old world, and like, eventually, I mean, you know, who's to say what the fuck? No, but she she she's already married one of her one of her close female friends a few times. Like they they've had ceremonies and stuff. Well, is the female friend? uh, uh, What's the word when they act like a boy? No, she's she's pretty girl. I don't know what I don't know what any of the words are these days. But no, she's she's very feminine. But um, her mother's a female rabbi, and very you know she's exposed to a lot of very progressive stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, this episode is way too progressive for me. That's I mean, I between know, you I and, and Zynga, like we're in fucking progressive <laughs> land. So, um, do you want to hear the fucking cover of Good of Forever and Dead yes, or no? Yeah, yeah, right, right. right later. Forever and dead, buildings standing set, standing their ground to defend against the rest. All the odds, don't forget your bets from the roof. I yell, you're hardly breaking sweat. 
Sabotage is no longer camouflage It's almost in the open so you better quit your job Can't say it looks too good It could be a mirage pointed at your head Think it's time to dodge Money's all been spent Planned to take it over But I haven't made a dent I lost some folks I used to call my friends They'll be gone when I'm on my feet again But sabotage is no longer camouflage It's almost in the open So you better quit your job Can't say it looks too good It could be a mirage pointed at your head I think it's time to dodge coming, but it could have just been the northern lights And a long time away is an hour, an hour from when Don't know when it started, Thursday or Friday But then again it could have been forever and dead Building stand and set, back to the beginning Got no time to sleep and guessing, yes I'm easily impressed The way you do confess, control the situation by the moves inside your dress But I love that cover. It, it's much different than my song, but I it's I love that that version. So thank you, Mark, for sending that in. You thought you thought it sounded like me, Jimmy? A little bit, yeah. I thought he's better. I mean, I love that finger picking. I, it's it's so cool that people cover my songs a little bit. It makes me feel really good to hear that shit. They're great songs. Wow, it's pretty fucking cool though, and I love his dopey story. Um, Jimmy, thank you for uh, for staying up late and doing an episode, even if you might have destroyed the whole thing. It's always a joy. <laughs> I always destroy the whole thing. It's always a joy to have you on the show, and um, uh, you love coming on the show, right? I do love coming on the show. I do. I do. All right, so stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And do you want to say goodbye, Jimmy? You want to, you want to give it a little goodbye? <laughs> goodbye, Dobie Nation. Stay strong. Toodles for Chris. I hope everyone's staying extra safe with all the madness we're experiencing right now. All right. Thank you.
And it's all I ever had. 